All right, good afternoon. My name is Greg Lois. I'm the managing partner of Lois LLC. Standing to my left, your right, is Elizabeth Perez. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm an associate attorney here at Lois LLC. And if you're here today, you're here to learn a little bit about temporary disability benefits. The title of this webinar is, uh, Do I Have to Pay Them? Uh, we're going to explore a little bit about defenses to them, how much you should pay, etc. And of course, this is a live webinar, uh, so you'll be hopefully asking us questions during it. Um, this is our New York Workers' Compensation webinar series. We also have a New Jersey webinar series, which will be next week. Um, every one of our webinars is currently on our website. Uh, you can click there. You can watch all of them. They have captioning, so you can even watch them with the sound off if you so choose. Uh, this is just a small part of some of the uh, community outreach we do. Uh, this year, uh, we are going to have new editions of my handbooks coming out. They should be done, I'm hoping, October, November. It's a lot of changes. A lot of changes. Lot it's changes. been a brutal year for me, a brutal summer, because <laughs> our statute was amended in April. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the amendments and how they affect our practice today. Um, just reminding you, this is a absolutely live webinar, Hi. so please ask us questions. It's more fun when you ask us questions. It does not have to be on the topic of today's webinar. It could really be about anything in New York workers' compensation law. If you're following along at home, and I hope everyone's coming to all of the webinars that we do, they do follow a curriculum over the course of the year, and April, May, and June, and every, every year it restarts in April. Correct. Uh, and we did defenses, so we've gone through intoxication defense, going and coming, notice, lack of uh, statute of limitations, all sorts of defenses in that first three months. Now we're in the benefits phase. Now we're going to talk about uh, how much indemnity we're paying, why we're paying it, and then when we next month, when can we stop? That's the main, most important thing. <laughs> and then next month we'll talk about medical benefits. Uh, after that, we'll get into more interesting or more difficult comp tips, and we'll be talking about uh, exposure, loss of wage earning capacity, how we price cases, how we uh, uh, set up cases for appeals, uh, sort of other uh, things in our uh, uh, defense toolkit, practice, yeah. our toolkit, exactly. All right, so with all of that, today we're going to be talking about benefits, indemnity benefits, and we're going to make one big presumption. There has to be an accident, right? <laughs> so we're talking about when can we start to pay um, temporary disability benefits. Well, there is a waiting period. It is a seven-day waiting period. And what that means is that for the first seven days of lost time subsequent to a work-related injury, there's no compensation that's being paid. Matter of fact, we're not even going to touch those first seven days until there's at least 15 days of lost time that is related to the accident. Now, those 15 days don't necessarily need to be consecutive. The claimant can lose a couple of days, go back to work, find out that they really can't work, come back out again. The idea is that on day eight, we are going to start paying, but those one through seven days won't actually be compensated until we've reached the 15th day of lost time in connection with this injury. All right, so that's the first sort of time deadline to sort of be considered of. The other one is New York has now codified uh, what was the payer compliance uh, guidance that we got from the board. Mm -hmm. And the board is saying now you've got to start issuing that flow of benefits 18 days after the first date of lost time uh, or 10 days after notice of lost time. Now, what this really means for our employers is 
uh, the board is following this electronically. They're checking your Freud's and Shroy's, and if it looks like the person has missed time and 18 days has elapsed and no benefit has been issued, we've seen clients get You're going to actually see um, an indication in eCase that's going to say payer compliance, and it's going to be a letter that's sent out to the carrier, and it's also CC'd to the claimant's attorney if they were represented at that time, making them aware of the fact that there's a penalty that's being issued for failure to comply with these rules that have been laid out. Right, and that penalty has now been codified in the April uh, 10, 2017 addition to the statute. So this is now statutory, it's not just payer compliance, not just guidance from the board. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, temporary disability benefit in New York? So when it comes to issuing temporary benefits, the way that we calculate the compensation rate is by uh, two-thirds of what is known as the claimant's average weekly wage. Now, the compensation rate is going to be subject to statutory maximums and minimums, but before we get there, we first need to figure out what is the claimant's average weekly wage. Uh, the way that we recommend figuring this out is looking at their 52-week period prior to the date of injury, getting the sum of all of the wages that they earned in that 52-week period, and then using a straight divisor method, we're going to just divide that total number by 52 weeks. That's going to give us what's known as our average weekly wage. And this is important because it is the average weekly wage that is going to determine how much you're going to be paying the claimant in temporary disability while there's lost time. Right. And let's not gloss over this as an important moment for you as the risk professional and us as the defense attorney to try to minimize exposure. Uh, sometimes we'll get uh, new files referred to us, and mm -hmm. I get these very questionable wage statements that say, oh, Greg, that person always made $300 a week. I'm like, I get it. We're using an approximation, but I really want to see the real average weekly wage. Yeah. Um, new York, uh, the statute says we're supposed to take their last year earning, if they had the same job title, divided by 52, and that's where you're supposed to come up with the average weekly wage. But we also have these other concepts of four-day-a-week worker and five-day-a-week worker, and basically using an average daily wage for those people who we don't have a complete year's worth of work record for them. I believe for a five-day worker, if they have less than 234 days within that 52-week period that they worked, then there's going to be other ways that they're going to calculate what their average weekly wage is. And in addition to some of the ways that he was talking about, one of the things could be requesting that a similar worker payroll is submitted for seasonal workers, for part-time workers, for someone who hasn't been at that position for the full 52 weeks prior to the date of injury. And this is going to be very important for us because when you're looking at submitting the payroll information for a similar worker, you want to take into account things such as, are they in the same position? Mm -hmm. Did they have similar experience? Are they at the same location? Because geographically, right. someone who's working at a location in New York City could be paid at a much different rate than someone that's working for the same company, and their warehouse is located in upstate New York, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Long Island. Exactly. I mean, these are the kinds of traps that are laid for us in the statute. Be cautious. We generally try to resist presenting similar worker payrolls. Absolutely. I would rather go with the actual person's payroll and make that argument. I also don't like using average daily wage and then using the multiples, 200 or 260 multiples. That always comes out more favorable for the claimant always. every single time. So those are instances where we're going to want to push back a little bit and try to say, Judge, let's use actual weekly wage. Let's use actual earnings. Correct. Um, there is a recent case. It's kind of an interesting one that came out in 2016 on concurrent employment. Remember, in New York, if the claimant has a at-work injury, we use that average weekly wage 
plus any other concurrent employments we have. We sort of come up with an aggregate average weekly wage, and then we get benefits based on that. And the theory is, hey, they've got two different employments. They're losing time from both employments, so we should make that up for them. If other they're losing time from if both If they're losing time, right. <laughs> other states don't have this concept. For example, New Jersey does not have a uh, concept of concurrent employment. Interestingly, there's an, a case that came out in 2016. We have a New York employee injured at work. He was working at a ski uh, facility. Turns out he had a New Jersey employment. In fact, he was a contractor, had his own business, made a lot of money in New Jersey, and he came into New York Workers' Compensation Court and said, yeah, my earnings at the ski resort, pretty small. Uh, my earnings in my contractor job, huge. I want my, my wage based on the concurrent employment. Uh, savvy Carrier Council said, no, wait a second. It's not covered employment because it's an out-of-state employment. It has to be a New York State employment, mm -hmm. otherwise it doesn't count. So in that case, that really helped the carrier reduce their exposure. Just mm -hmm. something to think about. Absolutely. Some of the things that we want to keep in mind that we are talking about New York workers' compensation. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if you're dealing with someone in New York that works in the tri-state area, I mean, they can get to Connecticut or Jersey rather you know, easily and they're able to have a subsequent job at the right. same time then you know, that's not going to be factored into the concurrent employment or their average weekly wage because it's out of state. Exactly. All right. A little bit about rates. Um, with regards to the rate, uh, you want to know that, the, as I mentioned prior, that the, the rate that is paid for compensation is subject to statutory minimums and maximums. Now, these maximums have the ability to change every year on July 1st, and they've consistently been increasing um, every year on July 1st. So for a date of incident or a date of uh, accident that took place on or after July 1st, 2017, now the statutory maximum is $870.61. The minimum has remained at $150. These numbers are calculated by the Commissioner of Labor, and they're available on the New York Workers' Compensation Board's website. They're familiar with the information, and you'll actually see a list, and you want to keep that in mind for two reasons. One, as I just mentioned, the rate did just change this month. But more importantly, it's all based on the date of incident or the date of accident. So if someone has a date of injury from last year, they're not going to be able to take uh, advantage of the increase in the rate. So the date of incident is going to determine what their statutory maximum and minimum is when it comes to the rate of compensation for a temporary total disability. Great. A um, couple turns of art. I mean, we put this slide in here, I think, because New York has some interesting ways of characterizing partial temporary disability. Yes, I mean, up until this point when we've been talking about compensation rates for temporary disability, it's been under the assumption that the claimant is temporarily total disabled, which means they're at 100%. However, you will note in the medical records from either the claimant's treating physician or from our IME consultant that when they're speaking about the claimant's degree of disability, they'll tend to use terms such as mild, moderate, and marked. And the reason that's of importance is because the degree of disability is going to help us determine what the rate of compensation is during that period of lost time. For instance, should the doctor say that the claimant has a mild degree of disability, that's going to be the equivalent of a 25%. And that comes into factor when we're looking at what the rate of compensation is. As you'll see in the slide that we've provided, there's more than one way to determine what that rate of compensation is. For myself, I tend to use uh, the one that's circled on the bottom, which is uh, taking the average weekly wage and times that by whatever the percentage of degree of disability is, dividing that by 150. You should also note that you will sometimes see mild to marked 
or I'm sorry, mild to moderate or moderate to marked, and that's generally going to be the meeting of the two, meaning if you're looking at a mild to moderate between 25 and 50 percent, we're looking at probably like a 33 percent degree of disability, and again, this is all going to be determinative of what the rate of compensation is for the claimant's disability payments during his, uh, his or her lost time. Right, and, and these terms, even though the doctors all use them, Absolutely nowhere in any statute will you find mild, moderate, or marked. It's more so just a term of art, and that way it's really good for you to know what that is because it's going to be used day in and day out throughout this particular area of the law, even though you won't see it in a statute. Okay. Uh, let me talk a little bit about causally related lost time. We're only compensating lost time causally related to the subject accident. There are many reasons people lose time from work, personal reasons, retirement, health, other external health reasons have nothing to do with the actual workplace injury or that impact on their working ability. Oftentimes we'll see people with a workplace injury, so they have that workplace accident, they go to a doctor, the doctor's telling them you have a work restriction, mm -hmm. they come back to work and they're working full time, full duty, doing the same job, maybe making more money, doing overtime, whatever. <laughs> I mean that's 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 a thing that happens too. Mm -hmm. um, and if there is lost time, sometimes that lost time is not compensated because it is not related. So, for example, if the claimant retires while they have a partial temporary disability or a partial total or a total disability, it doesn't matter. If they retire, they're no longer entitled to benefits. And the reason for that is they've withdrawn from the workplace. They've withdrawn from the, work, the market. They can't argue that but for their workplace injury, they would be working because they voluntarily retired. Uh, now, there's an interesting case, Smith v. Consolidated, case came out last year. In that case, uh, the claimant took a, worked post-loss mm -hmm. right up until the day of their scheduled regular retirement, okay. took a regular retirement, seven months later says, I want to be paid workers' comp benefits, and you know, the carrier said, no way, uh, you're not getting workers' comp benefits because you voluntarily retired. Claimant then goes out and gets a job paying much less than they were earning before and now says, this is because I have a reduced earning capacity benefits flow again. So it's something to be thoughtful of, hey, is the actual lost time causally related? Uh, maybe we've closed a location. Maybe we've had a summer layoff. Maybe this is a teacher who wouldn't be working over the summer anyway, mm -hmm. and we can make an argument that but for the layoff or the location or general economic conditions, uh, they wouldn't have been working anyway, so that's not related to the workplace accident. The other one is where the claimant has a true permanent partial or a partial temporary disability, but then chooses to change their jobs, right? I don't want to work in this. A recent case called Lawner versus Euro Brokers. This case was decided this year, uh, sorry, 2016 in this case. Uh, we've got a broker uh, who's a bond salesman and bond broker, decides he's going to go into some financial planning, a completely different area from what he was in before, earns a lot less money, and he, he lost the decision and the board came back and said, look, uh, I'm sorry, the appellate panel came back and said, look, if you hadn't changed your position, you could have done that job as a bond trader, bond broker, you would have made more money. Really, your reduced earnings is related to your change in profession. So those are things to keep in mind. Has the person accepted a new position that pays them dramatically less? Maybe their uh, wage loss is not causally related and therefore not compensable, meaning we don't have to issue those uh, disability benefits. All right, if you've survived this long, and I see that we're 15 minutes into it, uh, <laughs> now we're going to go to the good stuff that you want to hear about, which is how do we end temporary disability? So if at this point the, the lost time is causally related, the wage loss is causally related, now we're looking to how can we stop it. And there's four ways 
legally mm -hmm. that we can go about stopping temporary disability. Uh, the first would be if the claimant has reached what's known as MMI, that's maximum medical improvement. The claimant's treating physician is stating you are at permanency, this is the best that you're going to be. That's normally done on a form C-4.3. It can also be done if our IME consultant does an examination and states that this is, you know, this claimant has met their maximum level of improvement with regards to this injury. And now we're moving from temporary disability compensation to permanent disability compensation. Uh, next, there can be an offer of an accommodated uh, work. And basically, as we have mentioned before, should the claimant's treating physician provide work restrictions, now we're looking to see whether or not they would have an offer of light duty, some sort of accommodations that can be made that we're bringing the claimant back to work because the longer that they're out of work, the less of the chance that they're actually going to return to work at a later date. Um, as Greg had mentioned prior, uh, if the claimant voluntarily retires, if he retires, then that's a point in which we can look to end temporary disability because this is not in connection to the actual disability, but the claimant's own decision to go ahead and remove themselves from the labor market. And then last but not least would be uh, a lack of attachment to the labor market, which we've hinted to throughout this uh, presentation because it happens to be one of our strongest and, and most aggressive ways to try to get the temporary disability benefits cut as well as push them towards either closure of the case, settlement, or returning to work. Great. So let's talk about the steps in getting an attachment defense put in place. Absolutely. So at first hand what we're looking to do is uh, if we get some sort of medical from the treating physician that states that the claimant has working restrictions, meaning that perhaps they can't return to their particular job that they were doing, but they are stating that they are capable of doing work with restrictions on uh, particular activities and or lightweight restrictions. Yeah, and the way I think of it is, sure, the way I think of it is anything less than totally disabled. Absolutely. 99% and below is enough for us right. to bring up attachment as a defense. <laughs> um, at that point, what we're going to want to do is we're going to want to serve what's known as the C-258 or the C-258.1, and you're going to want to do that every two weeks. What those forms are are forms that request the claimant provide documentation and evidence of their attempts to either look for a job within their restrictions or to like reattach themselves to the labor market. Um, if for whatever reason they're not submitting these or they fail to respond, then we have the option depending on whether or not we've been directed to make ongoing payments at this time or if you're making them voluntarily. If you're directed via the law judge um, to make ongoing payments at this time, then we would file what's called an RFA-2, that's a request for action, and it's basically requesting a hearing before the law judge, in which case we would, we would submit evidence stating that the claimant has failed to attach themselves either because they've refused the light duty offer or because they're not providing the requested evidence that they have been searching for a job within the restrictions and the search needs to be both diligent and reasonable. At that point in time, we're going to have a hearing, and in the hearing, we're going to be requesting that the benefits be suspended due to their failure to attach. Yeah, and one thing you just mentioned, Liz, was uh, a new form, which is called the C-258.1 form. This form just was uh, made public or made available Friday of last week, so Ooh. three days ago. This is three days old. We're on this. Well, that's, we're on this. Uh, and this form is the claimant's record that they're looking for a job, and the board has distinguished it from the old form 
which they're saying this one is where they're independently looking for a job. They don't have anyone assisting them. Uh, so that's a very subtle distinction. I like the new form, and what I like about it is, and here's just a little piece of the new form, the C-258 form, uh, point one form, excuse me. Uh, here's a little piece of it. I like this form because so many claimants come into court and they say, oh, I looked for jobs. I went on the websites. Here's a list of all the jobs I've applied to on their websites. Right. And then you say, well, do you have any confirmation that you did that? Or how, is it con con uh, how has it been confirmed? Well, now this new C-258.1 form actually has a little section on there. You might be able to see it sort of on the bottom right-hand side that says, where's the confirmation number? What's the result that you got from applying to these websites? So that's really important because the, our goal of these, uh, using these forms and asking the claimant to document their work search is so that we can follow up on it. And it's, it's extremely important because there are very specific parameters in place to be able to judge whether or not a claimant is diligent and reasonable in their work search, whether the work search is being done independently or if it's being aided by a job placement service. If it's being aided by a job placement service, that's when you would be using the regular form C-258. And that's because when you're using a job placement service, you have the added benefit of being able to request either uh, subpoena the job placement service for records of the searches that they've done, whether or not they've come to appointments, and have they mm -hmm. filled out a mm -hmm. resume, have they met with the counselor. Right, and this is useful because so many times they claim they applied for jobs, which we, we communicate with that potential employee and say, I've never heard of this person. We have no application on file. So absolutely, that's a very useful way of undermining the claimant's credibility and putting them to their proofs. And job placement services, um, I think we were jumping into this slide. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really good. I mean, you've got the state-provided placement services, such as Workforce One, mm -hmm. which we're very familiar with. We've seen their forms. We know what it looks like. And as I mentioned prior, we can subpoena them and get a copy of their records to see whether or not they completed a resume, whether or not they've met with a job counselor, whether or not they've been applying for jobs within their work restrictions. And this is also beneficial to us in the event that we do eventually move to permanency, because we want to see what it is that they're saying that they can and can't do. Exactly. Um, additionally, there are private services that offer for similar, uh, similar type of activities as far as uh, services that are able to help look for jobs. And this is important because in the event that we need to question whether or not the claimant is actively, diligently, reasonably searching for work within the restrictions, we can always request to have a representative from that service come in and testify to the one, two, five, 15 jobs that they might have qualified for that for whatever reason the claimant either opted not to apply to or refused to accept if some application had been submitted and that's only gonna allow us to create jeopardy to then move the case either towards settlement, towards closure, or in the immediate be able to end the temporary disability benefits. Right, and everything we've just discussed and testing attachment and going after the job applications, this is really useful in the context where we cannot offer a light duty job to the claimant. Our handout that everyone who's on the uh, watching today, I hope already has, has a very detailed step-by-step -step plan for raising attachment where we have offered light duty. Correct. So many of our clients though, particularly carrier clients, can't make an offer of light duty or the employer can't offer light duty because of the nature of the employment. It's a heavy employment, it's a dangerous employment, they need people that have an uh, unrestricted workability. So all of this stuff really applies to the context where we cannot offer a light duty job and 
offering light duty or even coming up with an accommodated position, that's really the best way to reduce your indemnity exposure. Absolutely. And as you mentioned in the handout, in addition to uh, raising attachment, there's also some examples of what what we would call coin the perfect light duty mm -hmm. offer letter would look at like, um, which is important because we want to make sure that we're both dotting our I's and crossing our T's when it comes to an offer of light duty so that there's no way that the claimant or claimant's counsel can sort of rebut that offer and say that it was not an actual offer of light duty. We want to be able to make sure that we're covering all of our bases. All right. We're on the questions slide here. I'm going to come over here and see what kind of questions we have. Hoping they have some. All right. I see uh, at least one. And for whatever reason, not letting me scroll. Okay. Myron asked the question. Oh, oh, there's a bunch of questions. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. All right. James asked the question. This is James A. I'm going to go in order to receive the questions. How would you calculate average weekly wage when workers receive a lump sum payment per performance? 10 performances per year, no prior employment in preceding 52 weeks, and no similar worker. Could actual earnings be uh, be used for average weekly wage? All right, so what Jim's asking here is someone, and this is not per piece employment, so there is provisions in the statute for per piece employment, and that used to be more prevalent 100 years ago yeah, when people would work in a garment factory or something and they would get paid for however many objects they sewed in that day or something like that. We don't see that anymore. Uh, what James is really talking about is someone who's getting paid for uh, 10, maybe this is sporadic or intermittent work, um, and they're just getting paid 10 times a year from this alleged employer. Mm -hmm. First, I'd be looking very carefully about whether this person truly is their employer in that context. starts to sound like an independent contractor to me when exactly. you're only seeing this person you know, rarely, once a month they come in, they do something on your property or your premises, and then they're gone. So I'd be really looking carefully at that employment relationship. Is it truly employment, uh, or is this person better characterized as an independent contractor? Let's say you don't want to characterize them as an independent contractor because you want that bar against them suing you for their uh, damages in a civil case. Yeah, then I would be making the argument. I always make the argument to the judge, let's just take everything we paid them and let's divide it by a year and let's use that as an average weekly wage. I like that. It's simple, it's clean, and it's what the statute says we should do. Of course, in this situation, you don't have a similar work. You don't have somebody else you're paying for performance like that. It's going to be more difficult, and I could see the uh, the uh, judge coming back and saying, well, I don't, I don't, we got to find something similar. We've got to look at that. I would I would resist that as much as I could. I'd also look at the length of time of that relationship. If this is someone who's getting paid this way eight, nine, ten times a year, but this has gone on for ten years, I think you've got a very good estimate of what those earnings could be, and that's the argument I would be making. All right, good question, Jim. Uh, next, Suzanne, does Elwec apply for reduced earnings? Okay, yeah. So uh, that's that's a that's a pretty easy one. This is Suzanne L, and I'm hoping I'm seeing the whole question. It's kind of small here on my screen. It says, "Does LWEC loss of wage earning apply apply for reduced earnings?" Yeah. So uh, that's how we would calculate your loss of wage earning capacity if you're returned to work. Uh, there is case law on it. The case is called Emma Baxic versus Good Samaritan, and in that case, the board says in the context of a partially permanently disabled claimant mm -hmm. who has returned to work, we should look at actual earnings to determine their loss of wagering capacity. Uh, so that's relatively straightforward. And tune in uh, in November when we do loss of wagering capacity because Absolutely. we're going to have an entire uh, webinar just on how we price exposures and look at those cases. And just as we had mentioned uh, with regards to the temporary uh, disability benefits, we also want to keep in mind whether or not the reduced earnings for an LWEC situation are causally related to the fact that 
they're disabled and it's not due to some other economic or financial reason, in which case we would be arguing that they're not related to the claimant's permanent disability. Okay. Myron asked a question. This is a good question. He says, Greg, I thought the statute stated that evidence of attachment must only be submitted every 45 days. Would we send these forms bi-weekly, then file an RFA-2 if we don't get a response for 45 days? All right, so what we're talking about, we're talking about raising the defense initially, right? Um, there is nothing that I'm aware of that says you can only ask about attachment every 45 days once the issue has been joined. But really, our challenge, I've found the challenge is just getting the court to address the issue of attachment. Absolutely. In other words, the presumption is the claimant's looking for work within their restrictions. That's the presumption. Uh, there's a presumption in our, and the case law says the presumption is that if the claimant is not working, it should be presumed that it is because of the partial temporary impairment. That, literally, there's case law that says that. So it's up to us to raise some kind of contradictory evidence and to put the claimant to their proofs and say, look, you've got to show us that you are doing something active. Um, and what we've found is it takes a long time, often many issuances of the C-258 and filing RFA after RFA to get the board to address the issue of whether or not this claimant is legitimately attached. And I think by sending them every two weeks, what you're doing is developing your record so mm -hmm. that you have a better body of proof when you finally do have that hearing before the law judge to say, not that, Your Honor, we submitted one request and now we got it back, but we've submitted five. We've submitted ten requests and right. we've not gotten them back or we've gotten them back with sporadic, sparse, whatever the case might be. So the frequency in which you're sending it was just only going to help us be able to build a better defense for why the claimant is not attached to the labor market and therefore the benefits should be stopped. Right. And let's also talk about one other thing. This is a tactic. Lack of attachment as a defense to paying temporary disability benefits is a very short-lived tactic because what really happens is we go in there, we prove that this person's not really looking for a job, the judge will suspend benefits if we're lucky mm -hmm. and then say, come on back in 60 days or 45 days, Myron, or mm -hmm. 80 days or 90, whatever they say, mm -hmm. come back with your proof of attachment. And then the judge is very quick to restart benefits if the claimant can show attachment at that time. Exactly. So this is really just a method that we're using to sort of, in, in, in the cases that have dragged on for years and you're trying to get the case to some sort of meaningful resolution, uh, or we have a strong belief that the claimant is just malingering and not attempting to find any gaining for work. Uh, this is just a short-lived tactic to sort of press a pain button so we can bring the other party to the settlement table. That's really what the value of this is, because again, it's very easy for the claimant to remedy. And go out and look for a job within their restrictions. And it also reminds them that even if they do remedy it, they're going to have to be constant and vigilant in maintaining that level of attachment because if not, we're going to try to bring it back again and again and again. And as you mentioned, that's what brings, normally brings them to the table a little bit faster. All right, and here's a great question from Cindy S. Um, Elizabeth, how about someone who is attached to the labor market mm -hmm. and is receiving reduced earnings, then decides to retire? Could we stop uh, his reduced earnings benefit? Hmm. I think so. So I mean, that it's it's kind of a head scratcher because yeah. <laughs> here, here's somebody who's got he's been adjudged or we've admitted or there's been an established temporary partial disability, but now they've returned to work in some capacity and we're making up the difference uh, based on the amount of medical impairment. Mm -hmm. Then this person decides to voluntarily retire. Yes, at that moment, I think they've now withdrawn from the labor market. I think that our obligation to pay ongoing temporary disability benefits ends at that time. Would it also um, pertain if the person had gotten uh, another job and they weren't like working with the same employer that they were initially with when they got injured? 
Right, correct. Yeah, even if it's a different employer, I think if you decide to retire at any point, you say, mm -hmm. you know what, I've got my Social Security time, uh, you know, I've got my 401ks, I'm going to go live uh, down in Florida, whatever they're going to decide to do. I think the moment you make that decision, now, in our experience, <laughs> once someone retires, they always say it was, I wasn't going to really retire, but the workers' comp injury uh, really is why I'm retiring from the labor market. So mm -hmm. they always make that argument, and they'll even write letters saying, I was, wasn't was going to retire for another 20 years, but mm -hmm. I decided to. So it's, again, uh, one that I would expect to be litigated. All right. Uh, and then Dennis asked the question on, and this is like looks like the last one. Let me scroll down. Yep, last one. Dennis asked the question, uh, on loss of wage earning capacity, can we calculate loss of wage earning capacity using a floor of minimum wage position, assuming the claimant has no medical impairment, which would exclude him from labor market? And so I'm confused about this one. If he has no medical impairment, by definition, you can't have a loss of wage earning capacity uh, in New York. Uh, loss of wage earning capacity is not the inverse of wage earning capacity. So if the claimant is taking positions or they're only qualified for minimum wage work, it really doesn't matter. Without impairment, there cannot be an adjudged loss of wage earning capacity. I don't think the, the court or the judge has uh, jurisdiction or authority to do that. Um, if you're asking what's basically the minimum amount of loss of wage earning capacity, there is recent case law. Uh, that I can point you to that is saying now that loss of wage earning capacity can be below 25%. Mm -hmm. So there is case law that says there can be very small amounts of loss of wage earning capacity. Uh, but I'm not certain, uh, Dennis, and you might want to email me if you've got any clarification on that one uh, for us to answer that. Okay. Um, yep, and that was the last one. All right, if there's any other questions, please feel free to email us with those questions and we'll get back to you as quickly as we can. Uh, next month, our topic is medical treatment and we expect to conclude sort of our tour of benefits and start moving into indemnity appeals and other topics. We look forward to everybody joining us next month. Thanks, everyone.